0: Hello and welcome to Out to Lunch, the podcast where in normal times you find me taking fantastic guests out for a slap-up feed in a top restaurant. In recent episodes you'll have heard me dining on takeaways with my guests over webcam as lockdown prevails. But this week, well we've got a treat for you. Recorded pre-lockdown at the start of 2020, I'm genuinely out to lunch in an actual restaurant with the queen of burlesque
1: I'm kind of famous for, like, opening a a bottle and having it explode, you know, and pouring a big magnum of champagne down myself. And I'll tell you, nothing hurts more than some champagne in the eye. It hurts. Really.
0: I won't lie, choosing a restaurant for Dita Von Tees felt like a challenge. She is so poised. She is she is about the beautiful things and I needed somewhere beautiful. She the only thing she'd said to us was that she didn't eat meat, which meant I had a wide choice. I decided to go for Italian. We've come to a restaurant called Norma on London Charlotte Street. Um, it was set up by the team behind the Stafford Hotel. It's a Sicilian restaurant with Ben Tisch as the presiding chef. What's really key about it, apart from the food being delicious, is that the whole thing has a real Art Deco feel to it. It's vintage, and so is Dieter Von Tees. Felt like a very good fit. Let's go inside.
1: You made it! Hi, I made it. Hello. Oh
0: you know. Lovely to, meet, to meet, you. meet you. How are oh, sorry, you? I'm your podcast. Oh, well... It's a quite, We finally yeah. get to me. Yeah. Thank you for agreeing to come and have lunch with me. I'm going to throw a, a question at you. Okay. So when I was six years old, mm-hmm. 1972, my parents took me to see Gypsy, mm-hmm. the Angela Lansbury production, which was quite okay. a famous. Okay. A famous production, and I remember it to this day. This is Giuseppe, who's serving us today. You, I went to see this production of Gypsy mm-hmm. and it kind of instilled in me a love of musical theatre, mm-hmm. particularly that one.
1: I mean, I love that musical. And you said Angela Lansbury, Angela who Lansbury. is like one of my favourite glamour girls of all time. I think people forget that she was so, so beautiful.
0: You've often said that that film mm-hmm. was really important to you. That the film
1: Gypsy, yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. So... Firstly, for anybody who doesn't know, explain what Gypsy is about, because it's kind of okay. intrinsic to your story, mm-hmm. isn't it?
1: It is, um, in a way, but it's kind of an amusing story. So Gypsy Rosalie was the most, you know, famous stripper of her time, but she was also wrote books, and she was a household name in America and all over the world, and there's so many things that were interesting about her, but, you know, besides just being a world-famous li- stripper in the 1940s and having a lifelong career, she was a... Um, she had a talk, a TV talk show where she interviewed lots of different celebrities. Yeah, it's great. I'm friends with her son. She has a son named Eric Lee Preminger, who is Otto Preminger's son, but she never, Gypsy never told him, um, who his father was until he was like 17 or something like that. So it's really interesting to imagine this striptease star being a single mother in a time where that was still taboo. She's, you know, she's traveling. Um, you know, she made a ton of money. I mean, she bought the famous Rockefeller apartment, but she, so she um, wrote you know she wrote a book about her life but of course it was like the hollywood version of her but life the key
0: thing about her stripping was she didn't take much off not least... really.
1: I mean, there's, there is. there um, is. I just was with her son and he showed me his home movies. And there is some early stuff of her, you know, showing a, a lot more. But as she became more famous, she took less off and was more known for her witty banter and her clever songs. She was a great writer. And, you know, very, you know that's why people came to see her. And she produced shows with other performers in them. So
0: How old were you when you saw the movie with your mum?
1: Um, I can't remember how old I was, but probably too young to understand that it was about striptease. Um, <laughs>
0: well, the film was always a bit coy about it. Yeah, anyway.
1: yeah, and also it's just, you know, it is very much like a glossified version of her, her real story is way more fascinating than than the musical, but... I always just remember loving the movie through my whole life but always kind of fast-forwarding through the, her singing to the Lamb and all that stuff <laughs> getting straight to the striptease moments and when she really arrives and she has the great costumes and, you know, it's it was actually the only representation of burlesque that I saw when I first started out was I had a VHS copy of Gypsy, and I had a VH tape with some clips of Sally Rand feather fan dancing and bubble dancing, and that was how I based my whole career and based on photos and, and books because you know we didn't have uh, YouTube and social media to create mood boards and to see what other people were doing. So you really, I had to make it up, you know, based on those like glorified versions of what burlesque was. And later, when I saw real burlesque, I was sort of like, oh. Okay. And when, <laughs> did you very... see, when,
0: when was the first time you saw real burlesque? Like
1: real burlesque, like more reels of like burlesque performers. You don't really see like real footage in the burlesque houses. There's some rare things that you can find now, but back then. You know, you'd, you, I, there was this company called Something Weird Video, and they, all, they produced all these videos of Betty Page, and then some with like Betty Page and Tempest Storm, so you could actually see what Tempest Storm did in the '50s, which is different than maybe like the '30s and the '40s. So it was always hard, you know, hard to get that kind of footage in the early years.
0: Now we've got something for you. We got the uh, the chief barman here to come up with a cocktail oh, for you.
1: Fabulous!
2: What's that? Uh, this one is La Passione di Dita. Wow. Is a Don Julio tequila blanco with the mandarin triple sec, blood orange juice, and the foam? Enjoy.
1: Wow, this is exquisite with little uh, violets and an orange slice, and it looks wonderful. I'd like to bathe in it. Would in you? Fact, yeah, if it it's, were a little bit bigger. If it was a little
0: <laughs> bit bigger, you could do <laughs> the would whole dip routine. In,
1: yes, would dip I have
0: in. to say, you did actually give a slightly approving nod at the, the naming of the tequila. Was that because it?
1: I do love tequila, that's right. all. I was acknowledging oh, was that, tequila. Was I'm like... a big Mezcal tequila person, preferably Mezcal, but I could go for a tequila too. Do you want to
0: try it or yeah, is yeah, it yeah, just no, to... I'm, I'm it. curious know. to know how it is. I'm trying
1: it. Going in. Oh, it's strong. Oh, is it? Underneath that foam, all the tequila's <laughs> down there. This is, it's wonderful though. Not too sweet.
0: Do you have Perfect. much planned for the rest of the day, do you-
1: Couple meetings. You, so, yeah. yeah.
0: Well, you don't have to drink it all. You can just look at it all. It's
1: really beautiful.
0: Or see what happens as the day goes on.
1: I don't I think I've seen a more beautiful drink, honestly.
0: As we're audio, can you describe what you're wearing? Because
1: okay,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, I'm wearing um, a gray, kind of a, a dress, but maybe it looks a little bit more like a suit. Um, a little bit of cleavage, not much. A little bit of, little bit of ankle, but more leg when I sit down. I do have nice, fully fashioned stockings on for those people out there that are interested in the black lingerie and such. Um, I'm wearing a a veil on my face because it was a very early morning and I thought I was just at the London Palladium.
0: Which is a fine theater.
1: Yeah, I'm getting ready to. Is Is the veil staying
0: on all the way through lunch? is um, it technically difficult I could to take it off. Now. No, I'm just thinking about no, you eating lunch right with a veil.
1: I know, well it's uh it's possible. I do it all the time, but I think Oh, I it's might.
0: connected on an Alice band. There. Is that an Alice band?
1: Yeah. This is it's a Stephen Jones. I did I just learned the term Alice band recently. Do you wanna try it on?
0: Should I? Do you think I've got the hair for it?
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Okay. especially good on Jaunty, mid-length hair like yours. That's great. <laughs>
0: I've got an enormous head, detail.
1: The little poofs are really nice on do you. Do you think?
0: I do feel immediately transformed.
1: But you might I'm not be have able to, to take eat it with off it. Though. Yeah, you're going to have to take it off. If, if I'm not going to eat with it, you're not eating No, either. no, exactly. Yeah. We're going
0: okay. to be on a level playing yeah. field. Right. Should we have a look at some menus?
2: So, let me explain you briefly our menu. Mm -hmm. Madam, if you like a vegetarian option, for example, the chickpea panella as a snack should be your choice. Also the caponata, very traditional is a sweet and sour aubergine with the tomato sauce of course so some courgette some olive and capers and then we finish the dish with some dark chocolate mm-hmm. also the raw bar we recommended the raw they are from mazzara del ballo in sicily they are marinated with orange juice and rosemary i believe that if you also like fish it's worth it to, to try. Mm-hmm.
0: why don't you rattle off a few that you'd like well the, the
2: chickpea
1: panel sounds exciting because i was trying to learn how to make that at home They're probably. Great. probably not this version but you know <laughs> it's a good healthy option yeah, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm up for any of this, I you? you mentioned, okay. yeah.
0: We have a whole bunch of little plates yeah, coming up. Yeah, let's
1: just up. do this. Um,
0: and that could be fun. You were born in Rochester. Yes. And then moved to...
1: A place called West Branch, which is a little farming town um, not too far, you know, in the area of, like, Traverse City, if anyone's familiar with Michigan.
0: But this is small America. This is... Yeah. Um, small time. Rochester, even now, has a population of only twelve thousand.
1: Oh, is that so? I, I went and
0: checked, to do yeah. research, and everything. Yeah. So As was it, it was it a quiet childhood? Yeah. Were you very. kind of thinking uh, there must be more.
1: You know, it was really when I look back, I just feel really lucky to have had such a like really aesthetic and old fashioned uh, childhood. You know, growing up in an old house and watching old movies with my mother, and I had a house surrounded by lilac trees.
0: So at the point you, you've talked about, you know, your teenage years, at the age of 15, you go to work in a lingerie shop and your dad is furious.
1: Yeah. I mean, at that time I had moved to Orange County, California with right. my family and it was just a big shift. You know, my dad was just sort of, you know, I realized my dad associated like lingerie with sex you know which i can see why people do that but it's like not yeah i mean well kind of but that's his problem you know i mean that was it's not my it wasn't my problem i was just like a 15 year old girl that thought lingerie was a you know rite of passage of being a woman and a you know a required thing that might as well be beautiful at the same time so that was my relationship with lingerie so you know, there's sometimes things you have to deal with with other people's ideas and what their the stigmas or taboos are associated with things that maybe not yours. But also, not it, yours. you were his
0: daughter, and he was trying to relate to that, which he clearly found uncomfortable.
1: Yeah, but it was kind of it's kind of a strange thing to bring, you know, just to make snide remarks to your daughter who's completely oblivious. and It is just like I work in a lingerie store and I'm selling lingerie to ladies. What does that have to do with boys? You know.
0: <laughs> Take us through the bio for people who, okay. who don't know the full story.
1: Okay. So I was 18 when I graduated from high school. That was 1990. Um, I was working in the lingerie store and then I kind of started working in uh, in makeup and beauty for a brand called Chiseido. Um, and so I kind of started playing more with my makeup and my hairstyle, dyed my hair from you know blonde to red to black eventually and... Uh, I still had this interest in in lingerie and vintage style, and so that kind of led me to want to be photographed in my vintage lingerie collection. I was slowly accumulating. How did
0: you find someone to to do that?
1: I you know I remember someone coming up to me. Um,
0: That's the traffic know, roaring around outside yeah, on a London street, which yeah, I'm just referencing. It's very authentic. Going,
1: I know. I remember, you know, I was kind of part of this whole L.A. underground rave scene at the time, electronic dance music and whatnot. Um, I found that crowd kind of by accident. And um, my boyfriend was the biggest rave promoter at that time, so I was hanging out with all these club kids. And I was, you know, after a party, I was, you know, dressed in like a men's tuxedo. And I was at a a Denny's restaurant. You know, it's like this kind of diner that's a chain all over. It's disgusting. I was there and some, like, like a photography student approached me and said, oh, I'd love to take your picture. And I was like, okay. And so then I sort of had this idea, I'm going to get this person to take a picture of me in my, my courses.
0: Was that kind of the request you'd been hoping for, that somebody would?
1: Yeah. I mean, I mostly thought of it like I just want to have, you know, it'd be nice to take a pin-up picture.
0: So when you're on the rave scene in L.A., yeah. I assume it's in those big old warehouse buildings yeah. and whatever, mm-hmm. down industrial streets. Yeah did you stick out because what you're describing is not what i would have associated with the house
1: right scene. um no I mean that you know all the drag queens and club kids yeah I kind of like found myself and started dressing more extravagantly and I was a go-go dancer and performance artist so yeah I had a lot of fun because suddenly I had permission from other people to like wear three pairs of fake eyelashes and wear wear a corset and a bullet bra out in public and uh you know hats with feathers and so that was kind of like where I really felt free and had a lot of fun and uh, you know dabbled in psychedelics and whatnot kind of opened my unhinged my mind yeah (laughs) Um, and
0: so you're you're having your photographs taken and you end up also getting involved in shibuya have i pronounced that correctly Mm
1: -hmm. japanese rope bondage yeah Yeah. um i mean we didn't use that term in my day so i can't really (laughs) my day (laughs) it was just bondage fetishism yeah it kind of became i set out i saw a picture of betty page in the early '90s, and I was like, I'm gonna be like what she was. I'm gonna do these like vintage fetish I pictures. Think you have to describe and that Betty Page for an audience okay. who doesn't know who she so is. So Betty Page is like a '50s icon of pinup and and fetishism. She was there was a, a photographer named Irving Claw, and he created all these like bondage photos, like of girls being tied up and spanking each other and kidnapping video, you know, videos and and photos and. I just fell in love with these photos. I thought it was so fascinating and, and risque and taboo, and it was very different than what like modern fetish photos looked like, which at that time, you know, it was like the magazines were very glossy, but, you know, a lot of tattoos and piercings and, you know, rather punk rock and black leather and, mm-hmm. you know, lots of black. And I kind of had this idea about looking to the 50s and recreating those images and and evolving it to something more, you know, glamorous than what I was seeing. At the same time, yeah. while I was working in the L.A. rave scene, I also started working in a strip club occasionally because I thought and one, of my, one of my, the same boyfriend, he took me to the strip club, which was like a bikini club, and they didn't really take their clothes off. It was sort of like they're wearing bikinis and like lingerie. Right. Um, and I... I was just like these girls are making a lot of money for doing the same thing I'm doing at the rave club, just dancing around in my underwear, like you know, essentially.
0: You've talked about the fact that you said you know I, you love ballet. Mm-hmm. You've always said, but I was Wasn't never going to get that yeah. far. Yeah, yeah, yeah. no. Um, <laughs> and yet you're getting up on the podium. That takes. I
1: don't know. I mean, I guess I contest. just felt like you know I was in this safe space listen there's no cameras there's nobody judging it was I was having fun making my little outfits I had this group of friends and other girlfriends that were performing too my boyfriend was the DJ so it was kind of fun like I'd be looking over at him he's playing the records I'd be you know angry with him if some girls were up there you know it was really like a fun scene and um uh, I think it was. I don't remember feeling like I, I never felt like nervous about dancing until like maybe later when I became more known and people were sort of like, I, I didn't think it was that good of a show, did you? Or I thought she looks a little bit fat. She's too skinny. She's too, uh, you know, that's where I a kind critic. of got like, oh God, this is like intense. But back in those days, people weren't like online being armchair judges like they are now.
0: Oh, we have bread. Do you do bread, do you? I do, yeah. Good.
2: (laughs) So this one is our homemade focaccia with extra virgin olive oil from Sicily. Mm. Also, this one is the caponata, the sweet and sour aubergine with the courgette capers and uh, olives. And your spaghettini fritti Mm. with a lot of parmesan sauce. This is very exciting.
0: Clearly, you like your food. I do. But so we've got... Spaghettini fritters are basically leftover spaghetti. Well, mm-hmm. That's how I'm sure they i sure they make it from scratch, yeah. which is kind of rolled up and fried. Mm-hmm. It's basically fried pasta. What's what? very exciting. Somebody had to come up with this idea, um, and then a caponata. Okay. The, but the thing is, you described feeling safe in that space yeah. on the racing, mm-hmm. and then but surely I'm, I'm curious about the going into the the strip clubs, which mm-hmm. some people might say is that is that a safe space yeah. in the same way?
1: Well, I felt like. I met all these women there and it kind of gave me this experience of being around so many different types of women and I met, you know, these kind of cliches of strippers like she's putting herself through law school. She used to be a gynecologist in her own country and is trying to go to school here like you'd have all these girls that were actually like had their different stories you know and i thought that was really interesting and it was a time when you really had girls putting themselves through college and and whatnot because there was enough money flowing around that you could do that so i felt really lucky to be part of that and to kind of like learn a lot about um other women and uh men
0: what do you learn about men
1: um what did i learn about men um i'm like 20 years old working in this strip club i have a long-term boyfriend he's like kind of addicted to pornography and magazine girls but yet i was kind of like a stripper but i wasn't getting attention at home like he was sort of more interested in magazines than the real me yeah and that was one of the reasons i started posing for pinups and for early men's magazines was to give him back
0: an image of yourself
1: exactly um, so he kind of created a monster. He also told me about this thing called the World Wide Web that was happening. And I had one of the first girly sites on the internet back in the very early, early 90s. Like when you could only have one page on the World Wide Web, I had one. And I used had like... This set of photos up there. You couldn't click through or anything at that point. And scroll, my address. And it. basically, the address was like send 20 bucks to this address and I'll send you these, you know, print out pictures of myself. And that was kind of my first internet business.
0: Have you like talked to him since about. Mm-hmm. Are you still in touch with this guy?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Or vaguely A little no, bit. Nowhere, I, he
1: lives in Vegas. He's like. Of course you know, he does. Sometimes. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: Uh, That he may have been responsible for initiating something.
1: Oh, yeah, he knows. He knows. He doesn't, like, pat himself on the back or anything. Well,
0: quite rightly so.
1: Yeah. I mean, I still, you know, I don't, like, credit him or anything. I'm a little bit like, God, he made me feel like I was not good enough as your girlfriend, and that made me want to go be a pinup model, but thanks for that. (laughs) You know, you don't really reward people for bad behavior. You just think, like, oh, that was a great life lesson that that made me, you know... I, I like when people light a fire... You know, it makes you go do something with, with the issue.
0: So it's in the strip clubs that you start getting approached to do other kinds of photography in mm-hmm. the
1: home? The strip club promoted. At the same time, I, I became one of these Playboy Book of Lingerie girls in the 90s. So, you know, besides the regular magazine that, you know, had all these celebrities on the cover and playmates and everything, in that era, it was like, you know, the big, big blonde playmates. Um, I was in these newsstand specials, which was all girls and no articles. <laughs> And so, there, you know, this is where you'd see like girls from all over the world um, and different types of girls. And it was it came out like every mother month. And so that was like my first big I was in Playboy every month for that. And that's where I came up with the name Dita Von Teese.
0: Tell the story. I know you've told it a billion <laughs> well, yeah. times, but you have to tell it.
1: Well, I was working in the strip club and I picked the name Dita because I'd seen a movie from the 20s with an actress named Dita Parlow. And I was like, that sounds cool. And then when Playboy asked me to um, you know, be in the magazine, they said, I said, oh, I'm just Dita. And they go, no, you have to have a last name. I was like, I don't have a last name. I'd want to be one name like Cher, Madonna, Dita. And they were like, no. So, I opened up the, the phone book because we had phone books out there. Back Do you remember that? Some people. I remember very well sitting at the bar. Yeah. So, I opened <laughs> up the phone book and I was like, oh, let's look for people with a name like a, a Van or a Vaughn. You know, I was just going to pick a name. I picked a name out of the phone book and I called and I said, oh, I picked this name. I'm going to be Dita Vaughn Trees, T R E E S E. And they said, fine. And then I remember going to the newsstand like two months later or whatever and opening the magazine, it said, to Von Teese. I was like that's not right I didn't even occur to me like oh Von Teese. yeah strip teas I didn't even think like that I just thought it was a typo and I called them to correct it and then the next month same thing and finally I was like well we'll just leave it uh, It's
0: uh, no, the art of happy accidents Giuseppe is back with more
2: mm-hmm. so madam, this one is the, our sea brief mm. It's marinated with the pong molasses botarga and then we finished the dish with the pong seeds mm enjoy it's nice yeah. also I have uh, some uh, artichokes we marinate first uh, with artichokes then we finish it in the grill and we serve them uh, with the shallots and the pine nuts puree
0: oh. had you talked to your family back home about what you were up to did they know what you were doing or did, they, or did you have I another story
1: you know I had a kind of kept the strip club thing secret because I thought well I have a day job who do I, you know, and who do I have to answer to anyway And
0: the day job you were still working in the lingerie store
1: yeah, well, I was working at that point in a big department store, selling first lingerie and then cosmetics.
0: The uh, whole fetish thing, so I have to give you another bit of my story, which is, uh, my, I've talked about this on this podcast quite a lot, because people know that my mother was a very well-known agony aunt, Dear Abby, that kind of thing. Yes,
1: oh, I love that.
0: And so in my house, um, <laughs> there were a lot of letters. We're talking about the 70s, 80s, long before the internet, mm-hmm. and men be writing and saying, really what they wanted was approval for what they found interesting they were wearing their wives underwear or they were really into shoes you've said that you find that intriguing
1: yeah the things that people find psychology you know I used to love another thing I loved about the strip club and being the fetish girl of the strip club was you know they gravitated toward me and I thought it was just more fascinating to listen to them talk about you know their foot fetish or their stocking fetish or their smoking fetish and you know to to Pay me to light up a cigarette instead of like somebody grabbing my butt or my boobs. You know, I kind of thought they were more fascinating. They're more fun to toy with, easier to mess with. You mean
0: all you want me to do is take my shoes off and then?
1: No, more like oh well, that's going to cost you. you know? Like that's, <laughs> right. I used to always wear a corset. whenever I was at the strip club and it was kind of like my armor and I especially liked it because you can really build a mythology around hiding something it's a little bit like when women used to hide their ankles under big skirts and it was like you'd do anything to see an ankle you know it's the same thing you can really create something so I used to make people pool their money together or pay me a big you know to see what my stomach looked like underneath the corset
0: do you ever wear a corset when eating? this is a, Uh, a, a restaurant critic question
1: yeah, I have. I mean, it's. I don't go around. Of course, it's very often when I'm, um, you know, in, re- in real life, <laughs> you know. But one of the most eccentric things about my show rider is I have a banana chart.
0: I was going to talk to you about the banana chart. You are? Chart. Okay, well, let's okay. come up
1: now. Okay, first of all, it's the one thing that's really easy to eat where I can be... Corseted during the intermission. Like, oh, if I don't eat, I'm gonna faint. You know, and I can like not mess up my lipstick or anything, and I can stand. So we're talking the shape of the banana
0: is good. It's a very functional item. Yeah, it's like a
1: firm, but it has to be a firm, not too sweet banana,
0: but not green, surely.
1: Semi green. Semi green. I like it very firm. The funny thing is, too, I grew up hating bananas because my mother hated bananas. So I instantly thought I must hate them, too. I didn't discover bananas until much later in life. So I'm kind of... Was there a
0: particular show where you you went... yeah
1: do you know it's so stupid so i was in okay there was this thing in the early like maybe the late 90s like 97 or 98 they were doing this big like search for the modern chiquita banana lady so they had this fashion show where they asked all these designers to interpret the new the modern chiquita banana girl and so i was asked to be part of it and i wore this outfit that was a latex banana costume, you know, because I'm a fetish model. So it's like this, ben- this dress that's been like it looked like I'd been unpeeled.
0: So so it's coming up. And yeah, then... it's like a
1: tight, tight latex dress all in yellow and then like a little bit of white here where the peels were coming off the sides. I still have it. And it's got the Shakita Banana logo on the butt. You know, the little Sounds sticker. Sounds very special. The sticker. Yeah. It's really funny. So I'm standing there with my friend Eddie, who's my dresser for the show still. And we're standing there and there's like this huge, like, you know, mountain of bananas as the backdrop and I'm starving. I'm just like ravenous. And I go, God, I'm sorry. And he goes, why don't you eat a banana? I go, I hate bananas. I loathe bananas. But then I was like, all right, I'll try it. And I took a bite of one. I was like, it's not bad. You know, when you're starving and you're just like, you're, you're, you'll mm. eat whatever. And I kind of love to do that with food I'm not sure of. And I always thought like anything I don't really like, I'm going to try it when I'm starving. And I bet I can make myself like it.
0: And has that proved to be so?
1: I can't really think of any food that I won't, that I don't like because of taste.
0: So that's bananas. And, and this is literally a color chart that is sent through by your mm-hmm. your team in advance.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Ms. Dita Von Tees would like a banana of this shade.
1: Yes, because, you know, I got tired of people coming back with the wrong banana over and over. And it's like, you know, a lot of these runners are just like some dude that works in the theater and isn't a grocery shopping guy. So we finally just said, let's make the banana chart. It wasn't my idea. It was my tour manager's idea because she was so tired of, like, you know, there, make, sending the these guys out again to get a banana. Just, like, get the one it's, it's banana chart with a circle around the correct banana.
0: Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girl?: <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No.
1: Thank <music>
0: Hello, ladies and gentlemen. My name is George Ezra, and earlier this year, I started a brand new podcast called Phone a Friend with one of my closest friends, Mr. Ollie
2: M. N. Ollie. Yeah,
0: don't like the one of bit, but uh, <laughs> every week, George and I have a conversation about our weeks, what's going on in our lives, and the kind of main focus is checking in on each other's mental health, and we share stories, tips, advice. Listen to emails and I swear to you it's fun I swear on my life <laughs> it is well we find it fun we believe you might as well so please search for phone a friend wherever you listen to your podcast see you soon you described in one interview somebody writes you with a very developed fetish about wanting to see you litter
1: Yeah, I know. I've got to find those papers. He wrote a script.
0: He had a whole script?
1: He wrote a script. Oh. This guy wrote a few scripts. Yeah. (laughs) One of them, I actually made the film. (laughs) And I say film. How how long ago was this? I say it with a smirk. Um, This was in like the, I'd say like 95 or 96. Because that
0: that actually makes you a bit of a pioneer. I have a friend, John Ronson. Mm -hmm. Do you know John Ronson's work? Mm -hmm. He's a writer. He's written... Mm -hmm various things he, he's done a particular thing on bespoke porn which mm-hmm. is, is usually not very pornographic at all because mm-hmm. it's as the porno, pornography industry has suffered mm-hmm. because of the online world people seem to make money so they they make bespoke videos mm-hmm. and there's a whole industry and it tends to be very niche exactly like you're Super describing niche, yeah so what was it he wanted
1: so this the first guy before he did the littering thing he wanted a a, a video of me Rolling around on like fur coats and ordering on the telephone, ordering more fur coats and charging it to him and kind of like belittling him like, oh, he'll pay for it. I don't care how much it is, you know, all this sort of thing. And then he wrote one about littering, like his fantasy was to see me walking through a beautiful forest, just like throwing trash out of my purse, just willy nilly, just without a care in the world. And then he took it even a step further. And I was like, you've gone now you've gone too far. I was like, "Sir, this film's never getting made." <laughs> um, the littering one—I wish I'd done it, and I wish I could, you know.
0: Did you do the fur coat? One I then?
1: did the fur coat one. Yeah, I need to see if I can find the tape. <laughs> um, and I did a few. I, there was also a pie video that I—that maybe you don't. You know were pie kind of yeah that's another story it's but but the, oh, that's a, an,
0: a that's an that's almost mainstream niche isn't
1: it well it is but it isn't because this guy wrote he again wrote a script because people used to send letters on real paper and like well, type it. so he wrote he wrote what he wanted to and I made that video too and that one I do know where that video is and it's fantastic <laughs> so it's um my sister filmed it actually with my my friend and collaborative partner Catherine Delish who's a you know the one that Taught me the martini glass act really, and is my you know co directs my shows with me. So she and I have been in cahoots since the you know early two thousands, and this must have been right when when we met. And she, I got this script that said you and your friend are taking a ballet class, and I'm kind of like telling her she's not doing it right. So she gets angry and she puts a big cream pie in my face, and then I give her a cream pie in the face, and it just it was. If you have you ever had a cream pie in the face? No. It's one of the most liberating things you can do, and we I highly talk to the recommend. Kitchen. it. I mean, see if it's they incredible. It's exhilarating. <laughs> if you're too afraid of doing psychedelics, just take a big old expensive cr- banana or coconut cream pie in the face, and that is a little bit what it's like. And
0: I need to. I need to emphasize for a British listenership mm-hmm. a lot of our listeners are that by pie we're talking a pastry we're shell we're talking a pastry shell, with like, some tea or salt, yeah or, or, but not like bread. not
1: like a soupy sales pie where you take a whipped cream and just put it in an empty tin you have to have a big significant pie that's like got some girth to it with real bananas and the real thing otherwise it's not effective you I, that, presumably yeah. this
0: guy paid pretty well for this
1: yeah yeah I wasn't going to waste my time. I mean, yes, I would waste my time to make that video again. It was super fun. But, you know, you, people would pay a lot of money for that. I was kind of I was famous for being a fetish model then, and I wouldn't do very many. Honestly, it was maybe like three that, that, that I ever did, and they were all PG rated. There was not oh, sure. even like a boob involved. You know, they didn't care about that. That's one of the reasons I loved it.
0: Because it was so it was just like esoteric fun and fun, and funny,
1: and, and like something I wouldn't be like ashamed of or anything like that.
0: Is that uh, all of that stuff basically an interest in what makes people tick? Yeah, you know, I've else.
1: always loved asking these guys, and honestly, they're mostly guys. It's not the way I want it to be, but it's fairly factual. A lot of this like fetishistic stuff, like foot fetishes, Um, you know, like, oh, when did you realize you had a foot fetish? Oh, well, you know, I was in second grade and the girl in front of me kicked off her shoes and I couldn't stop looking at her feet. And that's what did it to me. You know, I love these stories. You know, it's really interesting.
0: Some people, obviously, they say it's problematic that it's men who have the fetishes and women who execute it. But you or is it just life?
1: Uh, fetish expert if you will told me once um he had this he was the head of this men's magazine um, that hustler had called taboo and it was like the great you know uh, that was great real tattoo and yeah really oh, yeah. hardcore fetish magazine but he was saying like it's just it's great to have kink and you know if you there's lots of people that are find things perverse and kinky and fun and willing to Play and have fun with things, but it's an entirely different thing to like. Sub, you, you're actually more sexually turned on by a foot or watching someone smoke than actually having sex. So that's like the real definition of a fetishist is somebody who's like, you know, for, for real, that's like the sex for them,
0: rather than the the mm-hmm. genital act. Yeah, yeah. I think to have managed to turn that into a rather full, yeah. into almost you know I'm careful sure, language.
1: Yeah, I'm sure someone will find fault with that, but it's like it's you know cuz people i've i've heard people say all the time but i like this and i'm like that doesn't that's that doesn't not count. it's not the same
0: do you use like the word i like a lot vanilla? of fun
1: things too but it's not doesn't mean if you're just just because you're a fetish player doesn't mean you like have like a true deep seated like sexual fetish that like you know you can really your,
0: disappoint people that way you know you I know. Go, no that's just no, sorry, very no. Try very again. suburban Try again. You're nowhere near interesting
1: Tedestrian.
0: enough. <laughs> what was the thing I saw? Someone online saying, you should never be ashamed of your fetish unless your fetish is being ashamed, in which case you're a filthy swan. <laughs> That's
1: amazing.
0: <laughs> You've spoken very interestingly about when people say, but isn't it just being objectified? I may have got this wrong, but you seem to suggest that being objectified, objectification is not in itself wrong
1: you know, being a woman who wants to be a stripper or a porn star or a sex worker or anything like that. I just feel like that's the, the ultimate, um, feminism is to do what you choose. And the only thing we can do to move on is respect each other's ideals. Like I respect the person that's, you know, not comfortable with striptease or pornography or, you know, wants to, you know, dress in in her own way and has her religious beliefs or whatever. But, you know, at the same time, we have to respect, like, the other side of the coin.
0: You've always said it's empowering as well, for you.
1: Yeah, it is for me. And I think it's, I always thought what's interesting is that what one person sees as degrading another person can see as empowering and that's just the way, it's a little bit like looking at art you could be like, that is an ugly painting or you could be like, that is a beautiful painting you know, mm. that is delicious food that, I do not like that, you know it's it's not, I'm not here to preach to everyone that burlesque should be their thing I'm just, you know uh, I think I have the rights to perform it you know, it's kind of, it's got a big history and you know I just think like it would be, it would be uh, taking away power from me to tell me that I can't do it. No,
0: absolutely. How did you go from the stage where you're in a strip club, and then you're on the cover of Playboy, and and it becomes something else mm-hmm. where it's a, a performance piece, yeah. and actually, pretty much stops being for the men,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and becomes for this audience mostly of women. Yeah. And the LGBT community as well.
1: How did that happen? I wrote a book where I sort of told my story and my relationship with glamour and how it helped me find confidence. And I noticed that definitely when I started to have my voice and people, you know, read what I had to say about what I was doing, that made all the difference. And then, of course, like I had some fashion designers and big brands that, you know, gave me a platform and put me, you know. So when did you
0: first do the champagne Glass in
1: 2000.
0: In 2000, mm-hmm. how many champagne glasses have you had made over the years?
1: I think I'm on my like sixth or seventh right now. Describe <laughs> the martini yeah, yeah. glass, okay.
0: I mean, it's, it's you getting into a giant martini glass.
1: Yeah, it was taught to me by Catherine Delish, who I mentioned earlier, uh, who's my creative partner. She did this act, she was the first person to ever create a choreography in this big glass. You know, there was never really this whole like it was never a classic burlesque act. It was never like a, a thing if you that go back to the 40s, the 40s you're not you going to find see a imagery reference. you'll find like you know art tattoo art or like girl you know p- images and art but the idea of it being a real dance performance that didn't exist before there was like you can f- see a few references of like in movies like a girl like sitting in a gigantic champagne glass or something is it perfect? Or is it? Um it's like a combo of different things of like welded steel and uh Swarovski crystal and acrylic. Uh, acrylic and what are you, filling you know. Is
0: it is, is it just a, a warm soapy water?
1: It's it's water. I although one time I remember this very well doing a Russian birthday party oh, on a yacht and yeah. them wheeling a dolly full of crystal champagne and asking how many cases we needed to fill it. Did you? I looked at it and I was like <sighs> This is my big chance. But then I just remembered how much that stings. You know, I've opened, I've opened, I'm kind of famous for like opening a, a, a bottle and having it explode, you know, and pouring a big magnum of champagne down myself. And I'll tell you, nothing hurts more than some champagne in the eye. It hurts. Really? And not nothing, but you know, it hurts pretty good. It's up there. So I'll do almost anything not to get champagne in my eyeball. So I just thought like, maybe it's not the smartest thing in the world to bathe in a giant glass full of crystal, if you know what I mean.
0: The thing you do now, this—you've you, done a bunch of tours. Strip, strip, array, went around the world.
1: Mm-hmm. This one is called Glaminatrix.
0: and it's going everywhere. I mean, yeah, this is
1: my longest. This will be my longest tour.
0: It's a lot. You're everywhere.
1: Yeah, I've never mm-hmm. done that long of a tour. But I'm the really excited. interesting
0: thing is that your fan base—and you said it—is women mm-hmm. mostly.
1: Your women and most of the men that are there Are nice. sort of like my wife My girlfriend wanted to come I don't know what I'm getting into um, And a, we have a big LGBTQ following yeah. You know it's back to fetishes On the last tour I encountered this At least three times um, Couples that came together and the husband was, was cross-dressing for the first time in public Well that's nice
0: mm-hmm. They felt comfortable in that environment Yeah. Now when you're thinking about your, your Talk cause, um, What people may not understand is it's not just you is it You have other people on stage performing as well. Yes. And they're not, again, they're not standard shapes, sizes.
1: I've always seen the importance in in showing, you know, showcasing burlesque performers from all over the world of different, you know, skin colours, different ages is important, different genders. There's just as many men in the show as women. I love when I hear someone's inspired by someone they saw on the show and that maybe their mind was changed about what a burlesque performer looks like. Mm-hmm.
0: Vintage is a very, obviously, a big thing. You you, you have vintage cars, you turn them
1: right. I have it, a big vintage collection.
0: Was there ever a point where you wanted to wish that you lived in that era, or is it fun being vintage in the twenty first century?
1: I mean, it's fun being vintage in the twenty first century. I think. Um Yeah, I wish I could like time travel and wear clothes from like the 17th century and then turn of the century and you know different eras, you know, in different cities where people were very stylish. I I always think about how much fun that would be. I mean, I'd be wearing maybe clothes from the 1890s if I thought I could get away with it on the streets. But it's kind of hard to fit into a car with those hats and such. Yeah,
0: it's it's all uh, there's a lot of height on it.
1: Yeah, I mean the 40s, the 40s and 50s are easy to do.
0: What about the cars? You still flipping
1: them? So yeah, I'm working on this car that's a, a very rare car that I bought about a year ago at auction, just kind of on a whim. I have this car guy and he's, I, he's an enabler, you know, he's the one that help, He's a mechanic, but he, he restores cars, but he's super trustworthy. And, um, he's and kind he of changed the, my life. He calls you, know? you
0: and says, he says, coming?
1: he goes, I'll never forget. I was just at home doing some business. It's in the afternoon. He goes, Pull up your computer. And I was like, no, don't get me into another car. And I know what it means. He goes, get your computer on. This car is up in about 45 minutes. And if we get it, you can drive it, flip it, you know, and this whole thing. He's like, if it goes for this, it'll sell for this at Pebble Beach. Super rare. He starts, he's just like giving me the whole lowdown. And I'm like, ah, God, I don't know. And then he talks me into it. It goes for the right price. And we've had it. And as soon as it was sold, um, he had all the like Pebble Beach people calling him saying, what about Pebble Beach car? is where all these vintage mm-hmm. cars yeah, are Yeah, it's like yeah. the big auction that happens in America every year, all the big, yeah, fancy cars. But really, I just, like, enjoy driving them. And I think vintage cars, it's like, it's either a good fit or it's not, you know. I had this uh, 65 Jaguar S-Type, beautiful black car. And that car the, car, the brakes went out on me all the time, if you can imagine that. Imagine the brakes going out on your car. And then I'd take it in and I'd say, the brakes went out on me. And they'd say, there's nothing wrong with these brakes. They're perfect. The car was haunted. I think so. But then eventually I did sell it to someone else and they fixed the problem. And I don't remember what the issue was, but they're like, we found the problem. And I was like, well, I'm glad you found it. I mean, I thought I was going to go down in that car.
0: Obviously, famously, you were you were with Maren Manson for a while, mm-hmm. and I understand that you're now on pretty good terms. We're on
1: good terms, finally. He was at my New Year's Eve show, cheering, and you know, uh, I, would I
0: in my salacious way, I was always fascinated by, by the idea of two people who both had a, a persona to the outside world mm-hmm. being together, yeah. and. Mm-hmm. The non-persona. You once said that you were you liked being Heather Sweet from Michigan, but you weren't sure he liked being Brian from Ohio. Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, we're both, you know, Midwesterners, dyeing our blonde hair black. I used to dye his hair, and then he'd dye my hair. Um, but did, you, did you have an he,
0: awful lot of bathroom equipment?
1: Oh, yeah. yeah. We, we connected on a lot of things like that, like do-it-yourself glamour. Um, okay. Yeah, I mean, he didn't like being called... Brian, Like, I never, ever once called him that. Um, I remember just his mom and dad, and he wasn't trying to hold on to his past for whatever reason. Um, you know, definitely creating a big, big alter ego, you know.
0: So do you think his was much more of an alter ego than yours?
1: I think so, yeah.
0: Because yours yeah. is basically...
1: Mine's just like Heather Sweet from Michigan wrapped up in a different package, you know.
0: <laughs> was that problematical for you both?
1: no. You know, we were together from the early 2000s for seven years. So it was a fun time for me to have somebody, like, say in my name all the time, and, like, Dita and, like, name-checking me in songs and writing an album about my world, you know. He really hammered the Dita and taught me a lot about, you know, doing interviews and doing press and, like, kind of how I should put myself out there. So he was very, like, oh, So was there a kind
0: of mentoring element yeah, into yeah, this is sure. how to be famous. Yeah. This is how to be forward-facing. A little bit, yeah,
1: a little bit gave me advice
0: what was the key bit of advice
1: like when i'm being interviewed he told me to remember that the interviewers are not my friend you know like journalists Mm -hmm. that they're just trying to like get that tagline or clickbait we call it now um and that to be careful and that i could answer i could talk about whatever i want and then very only very rarely will a journalist snap you back into the question they asked and that's usually if you're talking to like a cnn journalist or something you know what i mean like you're not going to get away with skirting the issue but a lot of people are just kind of like go, oh yeah okay and move on to the next question so i always love that you told me that because i thought that was actually pretty true
0: you can move true. things along on your own standards if yeah. you want to yeah um would you like dessert do you do dessert
1: i do sometimes but like a bite i'm not a i don't have a sweet tooth do you know yeah i kind of like certain sweet things that are very light and sweet like they I'm, have
0: some very good granitas
1: Okay, that sounds nice. I, yeah. I'm just not like a, he- a chocolate person. I oh, know uh, no, no, exactly what you mean.
0: No. Oh, there you go. Seasonal granita. Exactly. There's blood orange, Sicilian pomegranate, or new season rhubarb.
1: Hmm. Rhubarb sounds kind of exciting, or blood orange.
0: Why don't you get one and I'll get the other? Okay. Sounds one rhubarb good. and one blood orange granita. Is that all right?
1: Absolutely. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Living in LA, is LA a choice because that's where you grew up? Because it, do, it actually feels to me, in certain ways, in Congress, yeah. that you feel like someone who should be on the East Coast. Well, or... it's
1: a little bit like LA is one of those big cities where you can still buy a big house with a garden and four bedrooms and it's quiet and, you know, we have all those like kitschy houses. I live in, a, in a, an English tutor from the 20s and I love it and I have my own little forest I have a, a little um, English pub that is a pool house and been turning it into a pub hang on you have, it's really stupid uh, we've it's, got it's we've a, a un- granita
0: but I need <laughs> yeah. to know about this so choose which colour you want the one on the
2: blood orange on the right and the rhubarb on the left um, my okay I'll take this one
0: I knew you would
1: could, it so, was hard because that one looks really fun too
0: they're both fun but I, I kind of knew you'd go for the candy pink yeah,
1: yeah. I kind of felt like I had to yeah that's well, light, that's, nice. that's
0: acidity. Mm-hmm. Wow. You have a pool, you have a pool house, a pool. and the pool house is shaped as what?
1: English Tudor style pool house. So I recently gutted it and opened up the ceiling, the roof, or, you know, it was kind of closed off. It was just mm. a sauna or something that was redone in the 80s or something. So I knocked out the, the top floor and it was like this great ceiling, like vaulted ceiling, and I turned it into a pub. So I've been collecting like Toby jugs and swords and shields and uh, you know. I mean, you've got a bar things.
0: in there with yeah. with, with bar, uh, beer pools.
1: Not yet. Because you, you know don't I like, don't drink beer. You
0: don't like beer. No, I mean that, no. that's that's I, I need I'm, to. I mean yeah. I don't like beer either. I get into a lot of trouble. Yeah. With, you know I'm a British man who doesn't like beer. I'm yeah. basically weird. Right. Um, but the idea that you've got a pub but you don't like beer... So, you're not going to put the. the beer. I know.
1: Well, no, I will, but you know, I will. I just haven't gotten to that. I do have this great, like, thing from the 50s, and it has, like, this big shield, and you can lock a good bottle of booze into it, and with a big padlock, a big. You know, because we, in the 50s in America, we had all this, like, really kitschy barware. <laughs> so, it's really fun to shop, like, medieval barware, you know, from the 50s. I have a lot of fun with that.
0: You basically just found a whole new stream. A vintage to go and buy you?
1: exactly. I was basically just looking for another space to go trolling at the flea markets and buy stupid things to put in another space.
0: The yeah. obvious question, as we're coming towards the end because we have desserts and all of that, is: so you, you know, you've got clothes, you've got laundry, you've got vintage cars, you're on tour, and the tours are getting bigger and bigger. Yeah. Is mm-hmm. there, and it all seems to have happened, Dara said, slightly accidentally. I mean, you grabbed yeah. opportunities when they came. Yeah. Is there a plan? Do you know what the rest of the plan is or do you just want to be able to carry on doing what you're doing?
1: I mean, I'm kind of just think I'd like to keep producing this show, whether I'm in it or not. And I just keep thinking of ways to kind of like still be the producer of this big touring burlesque show, um, you know, that showcases great burlesque performers. So I think about that a lot, how to continue that because I love showbiz, you know. But you have got more ideas for shows. But you're
0: not retiring the champagne glass anytime soon?
1: No, no. But, you know, I definitely have... I've toyed with putting other people in the champagne glass. (laughs) But there's so many other acts to do besides the champagne glass. I just keep thinking, like, me and Catherine will have an idea. And we're like, we've got to make this idea. Nobody has ever done this before, you know, beyond... Way beyond the champagne glass. I guess a lot of people know me for that. But there's a lot of other burlesque firsts I look that forward. people will see in this show. I look forward to seeing them.
0: Uh, which all that remains is me to say, Dieter von Tees, thank you very much for letting me take you out to lunch.
1: Thank you for taking me out to lunch.
0: It's been lovely.
1: Delicious.
0: It really is a gorgeous colour of pink, that. Is it? Yeah. yeah. Dieter von Tees, a complete star and an utterly compelling person to interview. And bloody hell, what a delight to have been eating in a real restaurant. That day will come again. And the dates for Dita's glaminatrix tour, which we talked about over lunch, have been rescheduled. For more information on that, visit dita.net forward slash shows don't forget that there are a ton of previous episodes available to you wherever you get your podcasts and do keep those five star reviews coming to help others find us and make us feel like we're doing a good job out to lunch is a something else and jay rayner production the music was written arranged and performed by me jay rayner and robert rickenberg the mix engineer was josh gibbs the assistant producer was jemima rathbone the producer is selena ream and the executive producer is darby doris additional production is from steve ackerman Next time, I'll be back in for lunch with actress, writer, comedian and star of Catastrophe. It's Sharon Horgan.
1: Are you drinking wine?
0: Uh, Well, I I I was suddenly about to say... I've got
1: got wine.
0: Oh, excellent. Excellent.